0: This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of, uh, well, we would normally call this Weekends with Walshie, but uh, we are absent Chris Walsh, who is having a well-earned break, and also absent Peter Gowers, who... The last time I spoke to was, uh, had had his flight from uh, Melbourne to Sydney cancelled and uh, and he, I don't know exactly know where he is to tell you the truth, <laughs> so we, we might have a touch base with him at some point uh, next week. In the hot seat uh, this week for the Weekends with uh, Walshy episode is David Wood and as a result of that, we uh, renamed this episode "Weekends with Woody." We've had Woody on the episode before, well, on the uh, podcast before, I should say, well, at least two times, right, Woody?
1: Uh, three times. Three I times thought we should have been steered into your mind.
0: Oh, there you go, three times. Yes. Well, welcome to the podcast again, Woody.
1: Thank you, Leon. It's the uh, one weekend of the year the ladies look forward to having me on. <laughs>
0: Weekends, okay, <laughs> well, mate, uh, I enjoyed uh, speaking with you, and it, uh, it's a good uh, change-up from Chris, uh, as good as he is. Uh, you bring a bit of a different angle and a, and uh, and a different sense of humour to all of this. So it's always always a pleasure to have you on, mate. Uh, we've got a few stories on here, and um, uh, look to tell you the truth, I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm a little bit. I've been a little bit out of it because I've just been so busy this week. Uh, So I haven't had a chance to sort of dwell on um, some of the things that are going on. But uh, looking at these headlines, there are some uh, some issues of concern, and we should start with. um, I don't know how many times we've we've spoken about this on the podcast. It's um, legion, but. The TIO stadium. The minister gives the TIO stadium exemption with no end date from complying with the Building Act. What's happening there?
1: Yeah, this is this is fascinating and bizarre all at the same time. Chris goes away and these things drop on and I have to learn about them. Uh, the minutiae of this, but it's it seems incredible. So I'll take you back on Monday, the infrastructure minister Eva Lawler put out a press release saying that she was going to um, institute a thing called the the Building Compliance Task Force, which would actually be uh, headed, chaired by the Department of uh, Infrastructure's Andrew Kirkman, to go and um, make sure that all the government buildings in controlled areas complied with the, the building act. And she said, we're doing this in the response to the fact that Marara TO Stadium has been so hard to to get um, compliance with the act. And um, Andrew Kirkman has been the head of the department since about December, 2016, I think. So they're getting the man who's overseen some non-compliance to head the task force to make these buildings comply. And uh, someone in the industry who I had spoken to about it said, well, I don't know how this differs from the building compliance units that already exists. So it might be one of those um, uh, Monty Python-esque things where they just create a new body with a different name to deal with this stuff. But um, And she said in the, the release that, that this Labor government or was the only government... So this issue goes back to the like 1991 or something like that because the TO Stadium grandstand never had an occupancy permit to begin with. She was they were the only ones committed to finalising this, and I read that and go, okay. Um, she's been talking about how hard they are going to fix it to try and get this um certified, and then uh, it, she said we're going to extend the exemption of it needing to comply to have a occupancy certification so if we go back she government she put a notification in the government gazette in march i think to say that she was exempting to stadium from complying temporarily with the uh, with the building act and that was because you know there was an nrl match coming up and so two AFL matches coming up. So that took it through to June 30, I think, and this action was to take it past there. So in the press release, it said we're going to extend this past July 1, and there was no more information than that. Obviously, I put questions to them, but they choose to ignore us. So I couldn't even uh, couldn't get it further on that. And then yesterday, uh, a new notification in the Government Gazette just appeared, which was actually signed on Sunday but published yesterday, which gave an exemption to it with no end date at all. Um, Raising the idea that what she meant by finalisation of this matter was, I'm just going to exempt it and not fix it. Um, So it's really unclear about what the situation is and whether the government's still trying to fix this um, dodgy grandstand. It's not one of only two dodgy grandstands in Darwin. Um, Or... They they're just given up, and unfortunately, the rest of the media didn't really follow on up on it, so they didn't get any answers that um, people should be seeking from the government. It is very
0: very troubling, mate. You know, I yeah, I just well, I, I'm troubled on a number of levels. I'll tell you, the first thing I'm worried about, concerned about is how does uh, an, an institution like the AFL or the NRL get. Um, get insurance for a game like this.
1: It, it's mystifying to me. Chris has, has gone to the NRL and the AFL themselves, maybe AFL uh, NT because perhaps they're the people who are, the body is responsible for it and I think AFL's NT's response was the government assured us it was it was safe, it was fine. I'm not sure the NRL ever responded. I can't remember but we've got to put this in the context that just after the minister first gazetted this notification to give it this exemption, that's when ICAC announced that they were going to start investigating um, what the government was doing and the actions taken around this. So, I mean, it put, and that has been brought to the AFL's and the NRL's attention. And yeah, it's an interesting question why, how, how do they ensure this? And what's why are they opening themselves up for this sort of risk? And someone else. I think one of our comments said, well, "What about TIO, the insurance body? <laughs> like, well, their names associated with this stadium now? Wouldn't they be upset about um, what's going on here?"
0: I, I would have certainly thought so. I mean, I just, yeah, I don't understand it because, I mean, if I was bringing an event to Darwin uh, and it was being held at at a venue that I became aware was uncertified, um. I just, I would feel concerned, you know, I, I would feel concerned that if something happened uh, and it was shown that I knew that the uh, venue was uncertified and I, despite that, I, I, you know, I went ahead and had the event there anyway, my God, it would be a lawyer's feast. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's an extraordinary situation. It feels like one that could only be only in the it's an only in the territory type of a situation. You know, like, and I think the government or the the minister tries to palm it off, um, talk it down as if it's it's related just because just to it not having an occupancy permit because of the passage of time and it never had one. And people may just think, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's really just about paperwork rather than anything that is uh, significantly wrong with the, um with the grandstand itself. But as the NC Independent keeps on um, highlighting, there's like unresolved critical safety issues, including electrical issues, improper emergency exits and substandard fire hydrants. And I think be- just before the second AFL game, there's two AFL games in a row, the, um some NT firefighters Came out and, um, just complained or they, they, they were concerned about, um, the water pressure and they, they requested to their authorities or their superiors that there be, um, remedial action taken. I think there was a water tanker brought in there. So there was an extra supply of water, but I don't, um, so like these are serious issues that we're taking seriously by the actual people who are there, the first responders who have to deal with. Um, anything that goes wrong now and actually one firefighter said the mitigation um, attempts just wouldn't do anything if there was a serious fire mm-hmm. anyway so, I mean, these are these are really serious things and and to talk about legal liability the in these press releases the minister keeps on saying i can guarantee these this is safe this building is safe and i we keep on asking her, okay, on what basis, show us the evidence, what, what are you making the judgment on that this is safe and who's telling you this is safe? And she went so far as to say um, when she announced that there'd be a review of every government building in, in controlled areas, and controlled areas are uh, basically most of the cities and towns are built up areas in the territory, some of the more remote places. If there's a government building, they don't have to, adhere to the code apparently um so and then she made the extraordinary statement that these buildings are all safe there's not a problem and she just announced the compliance task force to review these buildings that didn't comply how in the hell do you make the claim that these are safe when you haven't even reviewed them and the other thing i can say about this extraordinary exemption that's been unexplained about whether it's a permanent fix is, why well, and, you know, I use the term fix loosely. So I was speaking to someone in the building industry and I said, like, I don't get it. Why why didn't they do this in the first place? Mm. And he said this, well, this, this exemption, this ability for the minister to do this exists in legislation. It was never... Intended to be used in this way, like it was for, it was for maybe temporary uh, certification for smaller structures, maybe after storms or in like not for significant buildings on a long term basis. If you know, it's been seemingly completely taken out of context mm. how this is being used, and um, and yeah, and the other thing is. Uh, the other thing is that the minister had, in the lead-up to, the, I think, the NTFL grand final, she went on to Facebook saying, no, head down to TO Stadium and back your mm-hmm. local team. But mm-hmm. um, part of what ICAC may be investigating, and you know uh, only ICAC knows what is investigating, but under Section 66 of the Building Act it forbids anyone to promote or conduct a public assembly in a place, building, or temporary structure unless not consent permit has been granted and not only do you have a minister here who's um, fumbling through this serious issue like the the TIO grandstand is one of the biggest meeting places of people inside a building in the territory I would have thought and she's not only not fixing it she's in, actively encouraging people to go inside that building
0: yeah very troubling uh, dave very troubling and uh, uh, yeah i look let's yeah i mean Well, yeah, and then, of course, you know, this uh, um, determination or whatever, declaration, uh, comes uh, hot on the heels of the ICAC investigation into this whole thing.
1: Yeah. I would think you'd have to say it's a brazen, bold move um, to to do it, considering, like, as I said, I don't know what ICAC's investigating, but um, to... To do this when ICAC has already said they're going to investigate the situation just seems astonishing. And I think the thing that strikes me on as on top of that as well is that for the minister to come out and put out a press statement and you know, I think the building certification task force is this um this look over here, look over here maneuver Mm. in that there is obviously there's you know, there's a there's a whole department that deals with the you know there's a, there's a section of a department that deals with deals with making sure buildings are compliant and to to come out and say, "Oh, we're going to have this other one, which is sort of what they've done with the investment you know commission and go let's go and get more people to look at this but then how disingenuous is it to go to say make people think that they're doing something on one hand, but when she's already signed off on this dodgy exemption from having to comply. She's like she'd already signed that off the day before. Like Mm. you talk about transparency and integrity and trust in government. Mm. How could you as a a member of the public go, yeah, that's the sort of behavior I want to see in my minister Mm. because that's, that's how I expect people to behave. And there's plenty of people making comment on our Facebook page going, well, why do I have to comply with, the building act like they're on me if my building they wouldn't let me live in my house if it if it didn't comply with the building code yet they're doing this
0: that is exactly right uh yeah look i mean it's just mate it's it's sad anyway look let's park that story and uh and go to the next one this one is uh, it's also an interesting one the um D- the Treaty Commissioner, uh, you've written a story about that, uh, Domestic Dependent Nations. The treaty report proposes self-governing and law-making for territory Indigenous groups. So what are we doing here? we be carving out little nations within the Northern
1: Territory, are we? It seems that way. I found this fascinating when I read the report yesterday. I, the NC News had had a... Uh, exclusive um in the morning from that being you know slipped a report or a summary of a report but it contained no real details and um uh, you know this this was a story that actually i i didn't think would be very well read and I, it wasn't read by a lot of people but i thought as a historical record uh, that I should write it and read it and understand it myself. And the nature of journalism is that you have to read things pretty quickly and absorb it. But I found it fascinating what they were proposing. And it, they basically is that they, um, the proposal is from, now It's quite a title. I think it's the former acting t- treaty commissioner is the, the title that he's going by, um, Terry McAvoy, Tony McAvoy, because his job's now. Oh, that's right, um, yes. <laughs> because I think the legislation wouldn't allow them to have anyone but Dodson or something like that. It's okay. yes. uh, yes. Anyway, so potentially what they want to do is allow all local Indigenous groups in the Territory, all coalitions of them, to to form what they're calling First Nation governments and they would be able to negotiate on behalf of their people directly with the Territory Government at least and probably the Commonwealth. And so they would start out that there's and it's it's i think it's it's legislated or the recommendation is there's going to be the treaty and truth commission act that has to be legislated by the end of the year and that they have to organize um a first nations forum that has to be held next year which that that would um then they would indigenous groups like they would Indigenous groups would get together and they would go to a tribunal. I think this is off the top of my head, and they would seek to be registered as the representative body for their group. And then they would be given authority. And so we'd have all these official registered groups. And then they would go and go to this forum. And that's when they decide on the the, the model that they're going to use towards getting through treaties. So there would be there'd be a treaty between the territory government and all these individual groups. But there'd also be a, a treaty. A territory-wide agreement that would be undertaken as well. And while there's no explicit detail in this, it they describe it as starting out with the power of local governments and then escalating for there as capacity and confidence builds in those groups. Um, so then they said there would be legal limitations that are written in there. But it didn't explicitly say what sort of rules there would be. Like, do they have their own police forces or do they, can they collect tax, which I presume is somehow against the Constitution or (laughs) it's all, it's all got to be contained by, I guess, what's in the, what operates federally legally as well and um you know i haven't spoken to anyone about this i've only read the report so i don't understand how it fits in with the broader picture of what's what's legal so and then th- there was another aspect of it that um there would be funding and there's a there's going to be a um, tr- treaty fund set up or that was a proposal to help finance these aboriginal groups into being after. to deal with the government and negotiate but then also there was a compensation which a compensation fund which didn't get a lot of room it was you know, back back towards the back and it was talking about how the territory government and the commonwealth would um, have to pay or how they afford to pay for some sort of compensation claims now it didn't go into any any detail at all about um how Conversation with claims would be made how they'd be decided what sort of body would make that sort of decision and and they didn't talk anywhere about what sort of dollar figures we're talking about but basically they said that the territory government couldn't afford it to do it and then they came up with these three different ways that um that the money could be raised which is called like a development levy the establishment of a land bank and a formal resource sharing agreement so that extra money could be generated to in, a, in partnership with Aboriginal groups. So, like, um, you know, the government may get a share of any sort of resource extraction on Aboriginal land and that would go to partially uh, funding compensation, which seems like they're just taking money from Aboriginal groups and then paying it back to them in compensation. But I don't have a lot of detail on that, um, yeah. And, uh, the reaction on Facebook, on our Facebook page was, uh, not kind about this at all. Uh, people were not happy about it. There was a few indigenous people who were standing up and talking about, um, the benefits from it. I think it's, I personally find it fascinating, the idea of this. Um, but it's so complicated. It's beyond my, my ability to, to comprehend it, but. There are, there are other aspects to it as well that go into there as an ombudsman and a tr- the treaty tribunal, which gets, to, I think, decide on who is legitimately representative of particular groups. And there is a truth-telling part of it as well. So people get to um, to tell their stories about um, dispossession and colonisation. And I used to live in East Timor in the early days after independence, and there was a truth and reconciliation commission there as well which had a permanent um, museum type thing with photos and stories which was uh just a chilling there was a chilling place to be in like in a in a good way i, I guess you could say but um um i guess it, it felt like a um it was a replenishing it was a cleansing of um of the country and cleansing intended as a cleansing of um being after a formal relationship with Indonesia again by having all of this out in the open and saying this is what happened, this is the truth of the matter. No one can hide behind anything and pretend it didn't happen. And um, yeah, I was, uh, I, was a, I will always remember being in that building. And
0: just looking at the costs here, um, the report—the report proposed the territory government create a treaty-making fund. To pay for various components of the treaty-making framework, um, what does that actually mean? <laughs> Where does this money come from?
1: Well, that, that was partly what I was, was discussing. So it basically—it's—it's it's hard to say. It, it was basically saying the territory probably couldn't afford this by themselves, and they would have to seek money from the Commonwealth. So that was—that's the administration cost of helping the Aboriginal bodies or groups navigate their way through the treaty to deal with government so the government would contribute money to to the legal and administrative costs and some of these the report said some of these um, agreements are going to take 10 years so there's going to be significant costs with it, each of them and that's where that's where it came to discussing how the commonwealth would raise the money and that was partly about that development fund or um um there was another suggestion yeah but um, development fund, the Land Bank, or the uh, that other thing that I said, which I forget right now.
0: Okay, and the sort of powers that the First Nations would have. It, uh, <laughs> can you can you talk me through that?
1: From what I there wasn't a lot of exacting detail in in the report. It was an eighty six page report, I think, and it, it discussed it to a, a relatively d- degree of detail, but um, it wasn't explicit about. It said there would be a gradual transition of self-government to allow capacity and confidence to grow, mm. while lawmaking would be subject to agreed legal limitations. Now, they describe it as as being having the power of local, like akin to a local government to begin with, and then it would grow through there. But the extent of the powers it said would ultimately determine through the treaties. Um, so they'll have some power to make their own laws within their agreed jurisdiction and sub- subject to agreed legal limitations. And um, and some of that can be renegotiated and changed as part of the treaty mo- making process. Um, Yeah, all it says is that they will take, over, take on a wider range of responsibilities according to agreements reached with between them, the Territory Government, and hopefully, it hopefully the Federal Government. Um, it says they'll be allowed to make laws.
0: I know. I'm reading that. i saying they will have the power to make their own laws yeah. within an agreed jurisdiction and subject to agreed legal limitations, which, yeah, but, um, which I mean, that- may be renegotiated and changed as part of treaty-making process. That's, in my view, alarming. Um, and I say that because we know that uh, Aboriginal customary law has some pretty draconian punishments for various things.
1: Yeah, well, it is uh, in negotiation with the government, and it does say it's going to be within, you know, constrained by um, legal limitations. So my presumption is they probably can't act outside of um, uh, the territory or Commonwealth law anyway with um, how they deal with punishment and that sort of thing but like I said like I, I think it's been going on for uh, several years I think to get to this report I think it was held up by the fact that there was COVID for quite a while but um, and obviously it says some of these things will only be negotiated during the treaty process but you'd think in a document like this they would describe the sort of powers that they're talking about and and give some sort of sense or Be explicit to some degree about what the legal limitations would be. Yeah,
0: well, mate. Look, I mean, this is going to sound utterly politically incorrect, but you know, we've just been through a decade, maybe two decades, of of uh, lecturing to uh, um, you know a broad section of of the religious community in terms of you know what what uh, you know. I mean, since nine eleven. Muslims have come under fire for what they wear, what you know, their their, their laws, all that sort of stuff, you know, and and there's been you know you know broad I guess pressure brought to bear on that particular segment of our community to to conform, to assimilate, all that sort of stuff, uh, and then over here we seem to be doing something completely opposite. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but it just it just doesn't. You know, it doesn't seem consistent in my view.
1: Yeah, I and mean, there's there's two two extreme views you could take. Is one is that ultimately you don't want anyone to be defined by race, so it doesn't even become an issue mm. anymore. So, like, there's no consideration of race at all, so there can't be racism and there can't be barriers and and obstructions to thing. Which I guess is a little bit idealistic. But if you look at it from the perspective of Uh, people from these Aboriginal groups may say or at least some of them would say, well, we never ceded power to the Europeans or the colonisers and that we've been living our lives um, and we never wanted to cede power and that uh, we think we have an ongoing sort of um, uh, community here or nation, for want of a better word, and that we should be able to transition back to how we were before you know, in a, in an altered sense, that we're uh, we're in charge of ourselves. But I what does transition
0: it. back look like, mate? Because it, it seems to me, and again, I, I could be misreading this, but it seems to me that transition back means well, we transition back uh, what we want to transition back, but we also want to hang on to the good stuff that uh, has uh, you know that has we've received as a result of uh, the invasion, for want of a better expression. Um,
1: yeah, I think it's a complicated thing, but I guess Aboriginal people get to to decide exactly what sort of society they want to do. And I guess um, I guess there'd be an argument saying, well, if people want to take full uh, be in charge of their own lives or communities or have their own laws, then that comes with the responsibility of funding it themselves as well. Which I guess we don't suspect that that. Um, is going to happen anywhere near in the short term with some of these communities, but uh, you know, it, you could also say that for 200 years, Aboriginal people essentially have been controlled by um, a foreign invading power and who've made decisions and tried to fix up the damage that's been done. And so often you hear the uh, the refrain from Aboriginal people in remote communities saying, "Well." we basically don't have any power to decide where where the funding goes to or, you know, have autonomy to try and heal some of this ourselves. And you often also get the fact that a lot of money comes in from the federal government and it's not tied to any, it's for Aboriginal disadvantage, but not tied to any specific projects. So the territory government often, um, you know, goes and builds a water park or claims that, all of you know, 85% of the corrections budget is territory disadvantaged money and it doesn't get to where it's needed. And I mean, I I can't imagine Aboriginal people have all the answers themselves to some of the challenges they're dealing with. But um I also have a sense that perhaps if they had more autonomy to make decisions about their own lives and things would improve because uh, i don't know in the sense of my own life if i had someone controlling me to the extent that i think some of these aboriginal communities are controlled um there's a sense of like i don't know like your your autonomy or your ability to problem solve and and take responsibility for your for your own for your own life and how to to make it better perhaps can be eroded but i mean it's such a amazingly complicated situation that we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with with what you've said there. Um, But I've said this on the podcast plenty of times, uh, Dave, and I'll say it again. The path out of poverty is education, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we've had plenty of people on this podcast that we've talked to from all sides of politics uh, and uh, some have more extreme uh, views than others, and uh, we have polarized views in, in certain circumstances, and some people would say, well, why should Aboriginal uh, people um, learn Western ways and things like that because it's got nothing to do with their culture. But, you know, <laughs> what we're dealing with in, in in a number of cases is squalor and poverty, uh, and in the case of Waday, even more diabolical. You know, yeah. and, and there could be a variety of reasons for that. I understand that. But, you know, in every single situation that I've seen, the path out of poverty is education. And I, I, I don't, yeah I, I, all of this stuff is way, it goes way over my head. It, <coughs> it feels to me, uh, rightly or wrongly, that it's identity politics. And, um, you know, and it's it's uncosted. It's just these fantastic ideas that, you know, aspirational things. And I noticed that, you know, the UN is, is, has, has got a declaration on the rights of Indigenous people and in minimum their standards. So, you know, all of those things get brought to bear on, on this situation. And in my view, my personal opinion is you can do all that stuff and you can give people the power to make their own decisions and, and everything like that and make their own laws and all those sort of things. But until they have, a you know, a decent education, it's just really, really difficult to lift out of poverty. You just don't have the skill set to do the things that you need to do to generate your own income. That's my personal opinion.
1: I think it's fair. Like, education sets you up to be able to make choices in your life, and if you want to stay and live a more uh, life that's more connected to your country and be there then that's a choice you get to make. Before we started talking about this I should have prefaced this thinking by saying I feel completely out of my depth as you do uh, to talk about this issue because it is it's me as a white man sitting back in Darwin just reporting on, on the words that are written down and it takes such a I, th- I think it takes such a. You need to be closer to communities and know more Aboriginal people, and to understand the situation to to such a level beyond the what I have to be able to 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 give an opinion on this as well. I can just you know raise some of the arguments or ideas that I've I've heard. I think education is is um is such an important thing, though. I think that's a it's a, a point, a really important point you'd make, and perhaps perhaps you should get the former acting, former whatever he is, treaty commissioner on the, the podcast to get yeah, a
0: bit. I Yeah, perhaps I should. Uh, you know, I've, I've asked uh, Yingya Giala to come on the podcast, but uh, I've had no response. Um, but yeah, but I, you know, I listen to you, and I, I, feel, I feel a sense of dismay because, David, the... the I feel that the way you've expressed yourself just then is a direct result of being conditioned by the environment that we're currently in about racial issues. Um, I never heard people speak the way that you speak and the way Chris speaks, uh, and to a certain degree, uh, the way Peter speaks, about um, Aboriginal issues in the past. You know, people were not afraid to express an opinion and you're entitled to an opinion. But nowadays this Aboriginal situation is so utterly, as it's become so utterly sensitive and we've all been conditioned, oh no, you can't talk about this unless you're Aboriginal. Well, I just call bullshit on that, quite frankly. Uh, And and I'm happy to be criticised about it, but you know what? Um, I... I'm just gonna. I'm gonna do it because I, I. don't think it's right. I think we're all allowed to have an opinion on this sort of stuff, and it doesn't matter whether we've lived that life or not. We've all. We all come from different backgrounds. That's what makes us Australia, you know. And, and I think if we're looking, I mean, if this, if we're talking about a Muslim problem, for example, you know, with uh, with terrorism and 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 all that sort of stuff, you know, we're quite happy to have a conversation about that and talk about what we think is right and wrong. But when it comes to this situation here, all of a sudden it's a zip up. No,pe I'm white, uh, middle aged. I've got. I'm not entitled to have an opinion here, and I just think, David, that I, I think there's something wrong about that. I think it is self censorship. I'm not criticising you, by the way. Uh, I'm making an observation about where the media has driven us to. And where our society has driven us to in relation to this issue. And it's not something that just happens here in Australia. It seems to happen in the US in relation to um, African-Americans uh, or even uh, uh, American Indians. Yeah. You, you, you know, we, we've, we're getting into this situation now, oh, you can't go there, you can't go there. Well, you know, I think that that's dangerous.
1: I think it's interesting what you say. I think maybe if you went to a, a remote community, I. Don't, been to some, but not for a long time. But I have dealt with Aboriginal people who are living out bush over the phone oh, and in person recently. Uh, I think if you speak to them, the, the, the level of political correctness or um, the idea of saying something, uh, there's there's not the same sort of, uh, I guess, fear about being labelled a racist because you're you're bumbling through. Things that I don't necessarily understand very well. Um, I think there's a, this is metered down from Twitter, the Twitter sphere. I think there's a real um, a toxic uh, idea or uh, restriction that comes with talking about Aboriginal issues as well. And so I, I think there is a, I do have a fear about talking about this issue, but I think the, the, the biggest reason. I don't really offer opinion on it, is because I think it is so complicated that I have no really idea of where to start. I think I when I think about um, the lives or the problems, because you know, not everything about Remote Aboriginal Australia is you know problematic. Like it's it's just that we talk about the problematic things, and they're they're so large. But I think I become I'm more dis. I feel more hopeless about the situation in people's lives and the way uh, they live and some of the problems they face than even I am with the the quality of government that we have in the Northern Territory. And um, I just don't think I, I can actually offer anything to improve it because I think the level of complexity is just incredible. Like, where do you start? And, like... It's from a it it starts before children are born with the, the problems that are going on like and that's that happens in the rest of society as well. It's just like maybe amplified in in parts of the Aboriginal community compared to what well, my might other places. And I think you spoke to Scott McConnell a while ago, you know, maybe last year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the thing that always strikes me, and I have a friend who's been a remote teacher, is like you're asking people to respect the education system and for kids to learn. And it always blows my mind that bilingual education is not really a thing in the Northern Territory. And I lived in the, the about the time bilingual education was getting taken out of or dismantled in the Northern Territory, I'd just been living in East Timor and now instituting bilingual education as a way to help their kids learn. And I, That's one thing that frustrates me is that there's a complaining about um, kids not getting educated. But to me, they're not not getting – the education system is corrupted in a way that they're not getting – they're getting sort of cut off before they can even start. And I haven't written about this yet, but I've been told about it in some of the Aboriginal schools because of the way the funding is – done in the northern by the Northern Territory government based on enrolment, enrollment I think but not the amount these tenants rather than enrollment I think that they even get the further penalized with the amount of money that some of these schools get as well but that's a whole other issue and I'm not really you know that well versed in what goes on but it has been raised as a really big problem to me as well
0: hmm. yeah well let's uh, let's see where that goes yeah um, uh, Look, there's no question it's a difficult topic, but uh, I think difficult topics need to have conversation about it and people shouldn't be afraid or shouldn't feel intimidated about expressing an opinion on something like this. Um, We'll we'll see how we go. All right, mate, um, back uh, to the police commissioner. (laughs) The entire Kajorina police station night crew called in sick Two officers are doing second shift left to run the station, according to your sources.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not sure what Jamie Chalk is going to buy me for Christmas this year, but I reckon it's going to be big. <laughs> it may be ticking as well. Um, so this is, we haven't reported much on staffing levels in the in NT police for a while. Um, when we do, it gets a lot of readers. And someone came to me with this. And uh, the people were keen to have this in, in print. I was uh, worried about the repercussions uh, for the officers mm. in question because there's been a lot of, basically, I would say, bullying and harassment by the NT police executive against people who speak out, or especially if they're associated with the uh, NT independent. Um, so, this is a situation where Saturday, so they Casuarina Station would have a minimum of six uh, offices. So one shift starts at three o'clock in the afternoon, goes to eleven. Next one goes from eleven till seven o'clock in the morning, and then the day shift will start. And there'll be more people on during the day because there's specialist people. But this is in Casarina, which is the, you know the, the heart of the residential population of Darwin. It's where Strike Forest Trident, which is the the property crime youth property crime. Um, task force do a lot of their work, and these uh, six, the six officers called in sick, uh, the ones that were supposed to be working the, the night shift, which runs from uh, 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning, With, on top of that, there were only two officers out of six who um, had been working the evening shift that was supposed to finish at 11 o'clock at night. So there was text messages going out to try and recruit people to go and do overtime and cover the shift, but no one put their hand up or refused to go. And so these two officers ended up working from 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 6 o'clock in the morning, I believe, according to our sources. So, So that means, I mean, they could put a van on the road, but they could only put one van on the road, and those guys would have been working for what... An extraordinary amount of hours, um, and when we're talking about this, all happened like so. This week, we also had the funeral of an Aboriginal um, Aboriginal community police officer who'd killed himself, and so and the police commissioner Jamie Chalker was at that funeral. And when you think about all that's been going on with the idea of health and well being, there's been five. Serving or former NT police officers that have killed themselves this year, since February that we know of, and when you talk about health and well-being, uh, and then you have these guys working that entire section of Darwin by themselves for that that huge shift, you go, know, what what's going on here? And we already uh, have reported that there's been a review into the health and uh, well-being system in the Northern Territory Police or the tri-services because they're join triplets with the NT fire and the emergency service as well. And I got leaked a summary report of that because the, the the pub the taxpayer paid for actual review into how our police force and fire services and how they treat all their staff is not going to be released to the public. But the summary said there was no mental health or wellbeing strategy that was backed up by any evidence. Um, so then you get treating people, officers like this. It's uh, incredible. But what's even more, what sparked this, or what I was told sparked this, was the fact that nine out of the 12, for better one of better term sub-branches of the NT Police Association, which is the, the union of the, the cops, And they're broken up into regions. So there was like Southern Region and there'd be Catherine Branch as well and like the specialist services like the Water Police and Forensics are all in one group. And there's 12 of them and nine of them voted, uh, put a motion from the floor of the NTPA meetings to ask the NTPA to hold a vote of no confidence in the Police Commissioner. And so uh, there was a document that the NTPA put out to their staff this week, Wednesday, Wednesday which said, okay, we're going to have a vote of no confidence. And that document was leaked to at least three media outlets, including ourselves. And in response to that, Jamie Chalker, uh, about 7 o'clock on Thursday night, put out a statement that had all the police executives' names saying, hey, I just want to understand what the drivers of this vote of no confidence are. I don't understand why you don't like me. And then said... There was a line at the bottom that said, We're aiming to get to the point where people, our members feel confident in being able to raise issues, which these policemen, several policemen said to me, going, Well, that's a exactly bastardized way of saying mm. it's not a safe pe- place for people to raise issues about uh, the dysfunction in the police force. Mm. So, mm. and, it's another only in the territory moment, but and t- just to give you some context, the only other three regions, and I don't know whether they've actually voted for it, is one is the commissioned officers, so um all the senior ranking cops haven't voted for it, or Jokers buddies, and there's the community police and the auxiliary police as well. but basically what what could be, 400 police already out of about 1600 have voted to say we don't want you Or you know the voting to say we want to vote to say we don't want you essentially and and how do we get in any other jurisdiction you think well that guy's gone because the policeman is going to come in and go there's such a bad problem here that you can't I, i cannot conceive of how you can hold on to your job Mm. But that's not where we are. And even to go even further than that is that the NTPA President Paul McHugh went to such great lengths in that document that he sent to his members saying, hey, this hasn't got anything to do with us, guys. This is what you asked for. And was, was washing his hands of this vote um seemingly as much as he could, like distancing himself, saying this was this was raised from the from the floor. It was put up by motions by members. It has nothing to do with the MPA, NTPA. And on the other extreme, to give you a bold context to that, Erin Early, weeks before from the United Workers Union who represent the firefighters said Jamie Chalker, who's the CEO of Fire, needs to stand down immediately because he allegedly um, said some very harsh things to recruit firefighters so it's an extraordinary situation all around
0: yeah it's an and one that just seems to continue uh with people just not uh i i, I don't know not, not not having self-awareness is what it seems like to me all right well mate uh <laughs> on the subject of security and uh and and that topic, private security guards to patrol northern suburbs and Palmerston for more money for business security upgrades. So what are we saying here, that uh, we don't have enough police so we're going to rely now on private security guards?
1: Well, that's – I think you mean – that uh, was not that was not the message directly that was came out of uh, the chief minister's press release on this issue. Um, there wasn't too much detail in this press release on this issue, but um, but so they have been try. You might have seen them, the guy. I think the guys wearing say I will say teal polo shirts who have been patrolling the Darwin city for a while. I think they're in Palmerston as well, and they've been dealing with anti-social behavior i guess code word for drunks um and the government thinks it's been working so well that they're going to extend it to the the northern suburbs to deal with the the incredible problems they um they're encountering there um and i don't know it's an omission that uh we don't have enough police Whereas the official figures that Ch- Jamie Chalker gave in estimates was that we have sixteen hundred and sixty nine officers, which was up from fifteen hundred and thirty seven um, the in the July one, which was in the annual report. So, seemingly we have more police than ever before. But uh, the, the chief minister gave no explanation in the press release about why they would be doing this, and she also said didn't say how many there were. Uh, what sort of shifts they'll be working, uh, or how much it costs, or how long this this trial is going to go on to on for? And I get, more importantly, what powers these security guards have to deal with any of the problems that there, um, they're going to be faced with? And maybe even more importantly, on top of that, what training do these people have to be dealing with these situations? Anyway, and so late this afternoon they announced that they were extending this to Alice Springs, which I haven't been up to follow up too much on that yet but um, I did speak to Robin Lamley who used an expletive uh, when talking to me about it so she wasn't completely uh, thinking that it was the greatest idea in the world. Um, it's, a, it's an unusual response I think to, to a crime problem to be having the security guards patrolling the streets. Uh, i would be interested to know whether you've ever come across this sort of thing before.
0: No, I mean, uh, I'm just wondering what happened. I mean, Alice Springs is supposed to be a war zone, so what are these security guards going to do? I mean, I can tell you right now, my daughter works at Casuarina Square, and and she told she's told me uh, in the past that um, you know when there's crime going on uh, and violent crime going on in the, in that centre, um, the security guards are running the other way.
1: Well, I guess I would be too. Um, yeah, it seems some of the, the idea of some of the crime that they'd be faced with, like uh, I guess you could even conceive like police get six months' worth of training to deal with it and that doesn't even seem like enough. But it is, it is incredible to think about what, what how they would be dealing with it and and like is it just a like a deterrence sort of idea that underpins this that yeah people so young people are less likely to to run a market? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Well, on the subject of police and and, uh, and police numbers, uh, the anti-police attrition rate is 10% over the last 12 months with 171 officers leaving. I think you touched on that just now when you were talking.
1: Yeah, I just jumped ahead, Leon. I don't read the rundown closely enough. <laughs> um, you can just boot me off this show until next <laughs> year when you're desperate. Um, David Wood painstakingly, painstakingly went and added up all these officers who had left by uh, reading the TPA figures. And they don't run from – they come out in the magazine, so they don't run from – they don't go March 1 to, like, September, uh, you know, the end of the month. They're like they, – they've got resignations from – they might start on the 15th of February and go to, like – the 24th of the month, three months later. So you've got to just go match up and try and work out how many have left. And because the NT police obviously don't speak to us, I have to cobble it together myself. But um, so 171 officers, by my calculations, and I'm saying on my calculations, I'm a journalist, Leon, so take that, take that on board as well. All right. 171 in a year. The Paul McHugh, the NTPA president, was decrying the situation last year or the year before when he said they're on target for 148 people for the year two who have left. But he said in a comment that I found that reported elsewhere that they used to have, you know, going back two or three years, they used to have 60 cops uh, um, a year leave. So. That's the incredible scene, yeah. Mm. And so Jamie Chalker came into the job, you know, around the 20th of, 21st of November 2019. And to be fully fair to him, COVID hit what well, the re- lockdown started in April 2020, and the NT police as well, the, the Australian Federal Police then took on the enormous challenge of not only securing the borders sounds weird now to say, securing the borders, but also dealing with inf- enforcement of um, COVID regulations as well. So it would have had an in- incredible impact on cops and a lot of them couldn't take leave. And famously, uh, the police commissioner told everyone not to take leave and then it went away at Christmas for a month, which um, upset everyone. But for him to – but and COVID, you know, is, is an element of, of why people – Potentially would have left, but I can't help but think it has something much more to do with the the murder charge against Zachary Rolfe for the shooting death of Kumanjaya Walker and Yuan Ramu um, three days before Jamie Choker actually started in his job. Mm there's been a massive fallout from that and the way that the chief the police commissioner has dealt with it the way the police commissioner has refused to in public addresses even talk about that situation by name he won't say zachary Wolfe. he won't say kumajai walker he won't say police shooting he won't say murder charge or supreme court but there's other issues involved in this as well and there's there's and look Put in context, I speak to a small amount of police. Right out of all the police there are, I speak to a, a small amount of police, and I'm sure there are police officers who support Jamie Chalker and and. But I think probably the way the way the mood seems to be, I've never come across this sort of hostility towards a police commissioner, even in just the general society. Normally, police commissioners are just. Oh, yeah, he's the police commissioner. There, there seems to be a, a pulsating rejection of him in his role. And, but there's other things, like they, the, the amount of like what's called Section 79s, which are the disciplinary notices, which people have complained to us are being handed out like lollies. And the, there's instances, like with Murray Smallpage, the deputy commissioner who accidentally live-streamed himself, um, referring to saying the collective noun of police officers would be a murder, and then apologising when forced to because it became out of control, went viral, and he didn't have any disciplinary action. And I think that's the, I think there's maybe one of the things that Chris loves most about uh, things Jamie Chalk has ever said was if people just loved each other more, like, we wouldn't have any problems and said Murray small page had no case to answer, there'd be no discipline. So people can see, like, I, I, there's, there was a figure in estimates put up that 500 There'd been 500 officers subject to Section 79s over the last year, and there was 340 instances or actual discipline notices on 500. I think they got that the wrong way around, and it hasn't been officially confirmed, but I think there's probably about 340 officers who have been subject to discipline notices out of 1,600 which is an amazing amount, I would have thought. So they point to the hypocrisy of what's going on inside the executive and how they don't get disciplined. And I know lots more about things that have happened in the executive that haven't come to light yet. So that's another thing that really upsets people. But it's also just the the, the way that they're treated, generally police officers. Uh, and there's many more issues as well, but it's just it just seems so ugly and so thick and so almost unsolvable in the the current situation.
0: Well, uh, that uh, story is going to be a recurring one, Dave. And I think, uh, you know, thank you and uh, Chris for continuing to keep a a watching brief on it. Finally, Territorians to be charged 2.7% more for power from 1 July. Is this this considered a big increase? Tough.
1: it's a win for the little people I'm Just, mm. I the, the chief minister said on this so this is for <laughs> this is for water and sewage as well so it's everything that's going up and I think they said it's 90, if someone paid $300 for power bill, it was 90 something dollars, it, I can't quite remember it wasn't, the argument that the chief minister is saying is that it's the CPI is like it's double what this increase is so they've um, kept it really reasonable um no one uh no one likes power price increases of course and the power price increases brought terry mills unstuck as a chief minister after what nine months uh a couple of years ago or 10 years ago now probably and um there hasn't there wasn't much outcry about this like i i think um Like on our Facebook page, like people didn't even really care. The chief minister, I think, said the CPI was 5.5%. So, um, and like our power prices are subsidised to a a fairly large degree. Okay, so the yearly increase would be $900 for a household that pays a monthly electricity bill of $300, which I think is probably a reasonable figure. Um, They say they've been subsidising power. The territory for 123 million dollars annually. So there you go. Um, I guess no one likes to see power go up, and um, but if it we get weather like this, it will never matter again.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, my goodness, what an amazing day! <laughs> I don't believe I've ever, I, I've ever experienced weather like this in Darwin in, in, in my time.
1: I heard on radio today uh, there was a news report saying the bureau said. We hadn't had conditions like I think they were talking about the amount of rain in one day mm. um, for 15 years, but I've never experienced anything like this. I um, kind of think the world's ending or something, which seems fitting with what what the news we've just discussed t- tonight is. So.
0: <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was just bizarre. I went outside at lunchtime and it was blowing a gale and i was looking at the people and everyone was holding their shoulders you know like it it was like being in sydney or melbourne or something you
1: know oh the horror the horror i am i had to put on a uh a little jumper i bought with australia emblazoned across the front of it that i bought from a souvenir shop in the in the mall a couple years ago when the (laughs) air conditioning at the nt news was so cold that we needed to rug up and it's been sitting in my cupboard and uh yeah, I look very stylish. All
0: right, right. Well, mate. Um, before you go, I, I mean, I don't have the uh, job of the week or anything like that. That's all Pete's, uh, Pete's job to do. But I, I did want to touch base with you. Uh, where is the NT Independent uh, right now in relation to access to um, press conferences and, and 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 responses from public servants?
1: Um. <laughs> we haven't had any updates since since I think Chris talk, last talked about it. It was um, it was raised in estimates, obviously, and uh, the Chief Minister gave. What I can only really say is a really embarrassing explanation about, you know, a policy. There was no policy, but they had a policy about not speaking to us. And I'm thinking, geez, it's like Gunner you know, 2.0, like uh, talking – in riddles or not quite making sense. But um we've had no more feedback on that. I keep on sending the emails in the uh beautiful hope that one day they someone will respond to me. And I think um I think someone a uh, knew fifth floor stuff and did respond to Chris accidentally the other day. And <laughs> and then when Chris said, Oh yeah, good, thanks for that, um, it all quickly went away. Um so no, but I don't know. I think I told you that uh, Crikey, the, the mm. what now is a quite a big independent website came out in support of us last week and did an editorial from the uh, the the chairman of the private media company Eric Beecher and he uh, he drew parallels between uh, uh, Vladimir Putin and Natasha Files, which I think is uh, funny but probably not very fair. But um, the, this all came about because the ABC um it was it was formulating a story. One of the journalists was writing about the updated on new chief minister, same old band going on, and they contacted Crikey because Crikey had run into problems with Peter Costello in the 2006 lock-up budget and they wouldn't let um, Crikey in. And I think the same thing happened up here when they had Bob Gosford writing for Crikey and the Henderson government wouldn't speak to him as well but anyway so uh ABC went to them for comment and uh, I think they were shocked that uh, the government was doing that and he didn't Eric Beecher didn't call us up and say hey what's going on he just wrote an editorial and I only found out about it when people were retweeting it or taking us in there as well so he was he was horrified that um, a government would in Australia would ban us ban media from press conferences and uh, he said, a feature of totalitarian regimes is they ban independent media from access to government information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said, anyone who cares about the pivotal role of journalism in a democracy should feel a chill down their spine when they hear about an Australian political leader banning media access. As a vigorously independent media outlet, where Crikey gobsmacked that any Australian government, could impose such a ban or make such an undemocratic comments, we call them the new antique Minister to protect democracy and end the Band. Um, but uh, perhaps also what's interesting on that is there's been no sight of that ABC story yet, um, even though it's been in the works for a couple of weeks. So perhaps there's some interference there about uh, the national broadcaster not uh, willing to uh, to expose expose this sort of behaviour from oh, the government. Well. It's,
0: it's it's so deeply troubling for me dave that the national broadcaster of all the broadcasters in the country not hammer the government over this issue you know yeah. I mean, they are getting paid they are on the public purse here and i have been a staunch defender of the abc even though sometimes i don't quite understand what the hell they're getting up to but you know if they can't defend um, media freedoms in this country, then I really question why they even exist.
1: Yeah, I, like I was supportive of the ABC as well. I I, I will always liked the ABC, and I think they they serve an important part. And when like, they the ABC has covered this story over. I mean, they they did it the first day that the NT news NT gunner ran away from us at um. Stokes mm. Hill Wharf back in April 2020, and mm. and I think at times the the NT News has written something. I think they had a totalized about it, but as a collection of journalists, um, it was put to me like the uh, someone I know in the union, the Journalism Union, rang me up the other day and said, "Hey, I've had complaints from a particular journalist that because the government no longer texts or rings to say they're having a press conference." Yes. That they don't get to go to press conferences yes. because they're trying to stop us going to press conferences, yes. and um, and it's an and then also the government's being selective about who they invite to press conferences, yes. which the Australian wrote about last year. And while I'm sympathetic to this journalist and this is this person's relatively young, I said, "Well, where's your outrage? Like now you're affected by it to a mm. small degree. Mm. Where's your where's your outrage?" Um, about what's happening and why uh, this is a question to journalists in Northern Territory in general. So this has been going on since April 2020. Yeah. No one has ever boycotted a press conference. Yeah. No one has ever taken any action. The, the NT Press Club, which organises the NT Media Awards, Yeah. they've never done, done anything. And uh, so you, you can go and sit in the glory of um, celebrating awards and be uh, responsible for that. Yeah. Uh, where is your? Why are not? Why are people not fighting more on this? Uh, not-
0: yeah, and that's what troubles me as a Territorian, you know. Because in an ideal world, what I'd love to see is the NT News publish blank cover pages on the NT News until the government lifted the ban, you know, just to show solidarity with what is a fundamental democratic right.
1: Yeah, well, I think. At the you know I went I started the NT News in two thousand and ten like two thousand and ten I think under the management then and for a few years after that they they probably would have done that. Um, you I you know I sent you the link to that podcast and I've been listening to a book called Corrupted and it talks about um, how we ended up with 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 corrupted governments and. Um, People that don't represent us very well, or to the best, and, and obviously we've gone through all the problems that are in the Northern Territory. But and they talk about, and they talked about Trump and how systems hold up to protect, you know, these institutions and the pillars of our democracies. But quite clearly, in this case, the systems haven't held up, mm. and like the fact that the government could get away with it, I think. I was reading today that um, this was about in Victoria. I was reading a story about recommendations to how to. They were our lawyers talking about how to improve their corruption commission because of flaws that have been isol- found there. And they said, "Well, the, you need to legislate the code of conduct for for yes. ministers." And we go, yes. well, we have a legislated code of conduct,
0: but no, I- we don't. It's, well, it's 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 odd because it's a,
1: but it's a parliamentary. Yeah, it's campaign.
0: just a. Yeah, exactly. It's it, But, it is. Uh,
1: but uh, yeah, the system has broken down and it hasn't fixed itself because there's there's a there's a there's problems within our own system that because we have that privilege committee yes which oversees it and it's always stacked in favour of the government yes and the with the integrity that we expect of them to be have that honored role as a member of parliament mm-hmm. that they don't act in in honor of the people they represent and this and the government the the system that they operate in they just don't honor it so they don't do what's right
0: yeah no, and that's exactly right and look uh, I was telling, I was speaking to another journalist the other day about one of the first things that I learned when I did constitutional law uh, taught by Peter McNabb. And i got to tell you, um, you know, it's one of the most interesting subjects that I did at uni in hindsight. <laughs> at the time, I <laughs> had no clue what was going on. It just was a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo, right? But in hindsight, it was just very, very interesting. And one of the first things that I learned, I remember, uh, in, in the first lecture, I think it was almost, It was about conventions, and I didn't understand. You know, I mean, you talk about conventions, you think, okay, some sort of you know party or some meeting, you know, of of associate of of an association, but no, conventions are effectively these bulwarks that that keep a democracy together, right? And what that means is that everybody, no matter what side of politics you're on agree to conduct yourselves in a certain way, mm. right? And that's the glue that keeps a democracy together. And what we're seeing in the NT through the, um, the ban of the NT independent and a whole host of other things, including the, the way the TIO stadium is being dealt with as well, is a, a breakdown of these conventions The party in power is saying, well, we've got the numbers, so we're basically going to do what we like. And if we cop criticism for it, we're just going to ignore it.
1: Yeah. It's exactly what's happening. It's, 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 yeah. And I I just want to give a, 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 like a retrospective hypocrite uh, disclaimer here. (laughs) Like, uh, you're talking about doing that learning all about that in university. I bet you it felt like it was impinging on your beer drinking time at the time. And uh, I've got to say, it, it, I, I didn't have an appreciation or an interest deeply enough in how our democracy functioned. And probably, uh, definitely, it's been working with Chris Walsh that gave me the understanding of the importance and watching him more closely and seeing what was going wrong. So when I call on other people to be to be doing more, I, I have to acknowledge that I've lived a pretty apathetic life myself. But now I've um now I find the whole thing fascinating. And I find I do see, like I think this is weirdly what also sparked me was we were ignoring pretty much the anti-vaxxers at the end of last year. Mm. And while there's some crazy stuff going on, mm the way they were being dealt with was when I started thinking about it, I'm going, this is not right. Mm-hmm. And I think they they spurred me going, hey, we're just, we're accepting behaviour from government without questioning it. Mm-hmm. And it, um yeah, like it, it gave me a new appreciation, this whole experience of working for the independent and, and seeing that up close, thinking we have to work hard to maintain our democracy and it mm-hmm. takes People caring and being vocal mm. about it to to make sure that it operates because it's a it's a really fragile thing. And like it, it's easy to say, well, you know, make that Putin, you know, reference that Crikey did, but you know, we things slip out of our control. And I'm not saying we're gonna have a dictator here, but things slip out of control and get off kilter and don't work properly very, very easily.
0: Yes. Yes, and and this is what this current government doesn't seem to comprehend, and it is very, very disturbing for me that they don't comprehend that what they have in their hands is is fragile, and it requires them to act with deference, and it requires them to act in a way that may not be in their own self-interest. In order to preserve our democracy
1: yeah 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 i completely agree and it, it takes me back to the question you asked me about well, when the go is the government going to speak to us and going back to the chief minister Natasha files um, uh, explanation or, or answer to the question put to by robert lamley in estimates was it it basically equated to i'm offended I was offended by someone, yeah. so that gives me the right to say I'm going to completely ignore yes. important conventions of relationships with a free press, and and it, it, like the strength of her argument is Owen Pike offended me, so that gives me the right to um, stop journalists asking me questions as me as the Chief Minister. And, like, when you when you put it like that, and I don't think I'm being unfair with the explanation about what she said, um, it's, kind of, it's crazy.
0: It's absolutely crazy. And what's really uh, frightening about all of that is it displays, in my opinion, just a, a level of immaturity and a level of, uh, I don't know how else to say this other than, growth incompetence, right, of someone occupying the position of chief minister. Now, that might sound harsh, but a chief minister who actually understood what their job was and actually understood what leadership was would say, look, NT Independent, I don't like a lot of what you do, but I respect your right to be able to write it, and I respect your your right to be able to investigate and to hold me to scrutiny because that is what a democracy is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't see Jerry Wood doing that. Um, And then she flinched into this territory of unbiased and all that, you know, negative, like all this impossible stuff that talking about how anyone ever could be possibly unbiased is going, they're unbiased. No one in humankind has been unbiased. You work very hard as a professional to not let personal grievances or your thoughts get in the way of your journalism. But um, starting down that track is just, you know, it's, quite... Diverse. It's
0: fraught. It's and fraught. It's also, it's
1: and it's also be- become contagious, this yes. government ban, because now when people don't like what we write about them or have problems with it. So the NT Police Association, they don't speak to us anymore because... Yes watch a day, the government doesn't have to, and yeah. someone someone else stopped talking to us the other day. And it's just like every so often you'll go, oh, they don't speak to us anymore. Right.
0: And, and, and that goes back to what I was saying before, Woody, which is leadership, right? The rot starts from the head. So you, you've got to, you know, you've got to have a high level of self-awareness. You've got to be able to take criticism and you've got to be able to see the bigger picture. And I don't see that happening with this government. I really don't. And I tell you what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the opposition looking at all of this. And, of course, they're reveling in it because, uh, you know, they can hold the government to account about about the government doing wrong. But one day the opposition is going to be in power. And I just wonder whether they're going to take a leaf out of the government's book and go, right, oh, well, labor did this we're going to do the same thing
1: yeah yeah i think um one of the very difficult things as a human being is to admit you're wrong (laughs) especially if you're in a very public position as as a chief minister and politicians are and and where we in the media are and i think the media generally is very very to be fair very very bad at saying they got things wrong there's a thing in the industry known as ninja editing where now because of digital you get something wrong you go and change it in the story and then you have this like uh yeah the big brother thing where oh it's all disappeared and like we put an editor's note saying this is what the story used to say and this is what we got wrong and you know Places like The Guardian get it wrong, but and I can relate to politicians. It really is hard to own up and go, I got that wrong. And Chris and I have discussed it, and we try very hard to swallow our pride and say, we got this wrong. And if, it, if it's significant enough, we'll put a Facebook post up and say, we got that wrong. But you know, it actually feels really good after you've done it to go, you know what? I just said I was wrong, and you know the world didn't end. And uh, you know I think in some in instances, because it's not happening all the time, it's given us a um a degree of extra. And people see it as having more integrity because yeah. we're willing to do it. And um, yeah. and I'm not saying we don't make mistakes. This time like with the with the, like we everyone will always make mistakes. There's going to be mistakes made, and we're not perfect. And I'm not trying to say that we are in any in any way, although this conversation has made me feel morally and ethically superior. So thank you very much for that. But um, <laughs> it, is a, it is a very fraught situation. And uh, another thing that Chris and I talked about when we started was we were like we had no power whatsoever, you know, like we were this fledgling news organization. And it, I think it really shouldn't have been up to work because there's just a couple of us pumping out these articles. And I said, you know, we're gonna do, you have to be very careful when you do become powerful about how you exercise that power, you know, because mm. and we're we we are gaining a level of influence mm. in the territory. And we have to always be mindful about our position mm. and how we're using our power and making sure that we keep on re- reevaluating what we're doing and looking at our ethics and looking at, you know, trying to look at blind spots that we may have about how we're doing things. So yeah, it's a it's a fraud. It's a it's a fraud world. The whole world being, especially being in the public light and trying to do it in the in the best way you can and be fair and trying to have integrity.
0: Yeah, it is it is fraud and it is uh, equally fraught or perhaps more fraught for people like me who are part time, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, podcasters that uh, you don't have any training in in journalism or or anything like that. And all we're trying to do is have conversations that are real, and and hopefully resonate with people. And yeah, so we we've learned a lot from you guys too. I have.
1: <laughs> well, you, you guys have uh, had some amazing conversations with people, um, and you you've given people a a platform to be known that didn't have it have it before. And you're you know you're dealing with a world that you know. You can't be fact-checking in real time, and it's it's not it's not the same sort of thing that we're producing. You're having conversation with people, and and um, you know, what they say is you know essentially what they say. But um, having said all this, I've also been listening to uh, a book about uh, philosophy and whether the actual yourself even exists. Oh, so yes. yes. apparently, self doesn't exist. So. I actually don't have to take any responsibility for anything because <laughs> anyway, I actually don't really exist.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, Woody, uh, great to have you on the podcast and I guess we will speak with you again this time next year maybe.
1: Yeah, unless um, Chris dies in some unfortunate accident in the next couple of weeks or something. <laughs> if I've got a lost taste for this power of being on a podcast, but I'm sure that won't happen. And if it does has nothing to do with me but it's been a pleasure it's always great to chat to you and i'm sorry pete wasn't around but yeah thanks very much for giving your time
0: you're welcome you're welcome well that was another episode of the uh, territory story podcast uh, this one called weekends with woody and i guess we will see you again next week thank you You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.